Church, of course, is where many of us come especially to meet with God, but how do we know what He wants from us? Well, this morning we will discover in uh, preview, if you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and we're looking this morning at verse 2, as we come now to God's Word, to hear what it is that He has for us this morning. Let's pray together and ask for His help and the power of His Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, may Your Word enlighten the ignorant, awaken the careless, and reclaim the wandering. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So friends, Romans chapter 1 and verse 2, and just picking up the last phrase of the previous verse, the gospel of God, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Well, one way to illustrate an important uh, distinction we'll be making this morning as we study this verse is from the Star Wars franchise. That distinction is between a prequel and a preview. I suspect most Star Wars fans will admit that uh, even though they may have liked uh, the uh, newer prequels, they were not a patch on the older originals. When you first hear Darth Vader say, I am your father, it is startling. But spending hours watching how Darth Vader became Vader is less so. A preview, however, builds excitement for something you have not heard that is about to happen. So this is the Bible, a preview See, some people seem to view the Bible as a sort of devilishly complicated book with hidden meanings and numerological possibilities whose code can only be cracked by those with extensive education and a knowledge of at least four dead languages. Now, the truth, I'm afraid, is far different. Actually, according to Paul, the Bible is very simple. It is simple, that is, it has a single overarching key message. Now, that does not mean at the same time extensive education is not useful. Of course, it's a good thing to study the Bible and be able to actually find where Ezra is in the Bible without having to look in the index or do so surreptitiously, hoping no college professor behind you will notice, you know, and as I have to confess, I did one Sunday evening recently and was studying Ezra in the evening service. You know, look, the pastor can't find Ezra, I feared someone would say. <laughs> As I had a sort of momentary senior moment. Where is this book? Um, of, of course, there are great complexities and enormous problems and fantastic heights of joy and visions of the future and, and most of all, of who God is, who... Who God is being a subject that surely, if anything, is big, immense, mind-blowing, enormous, glorious. However, the Bible is not a book about many different things. 
It's a book about one thing, namely the gospel. And so when Paul says in verse 2, which he promised beforehand, he's obviously referring back to the gospel of God that immediately precedes the which. The gospel is what God promised beforehand. So not only can we say that the New Testament is about the gospel of God, a statement hardly likely to surprise anyone here at College Church this morning, probably, I think. We can also say that the Old Testament is about the gospel of God too. The gospel of God is promised beforehand, or as some have rendered it, pre-preached. Paul is not saying then that the Old Testament is full of lots of little promises that we can hang on our walls to make us feel better about life, and that's fine. I have such little promises myself, and I find them encouraging too. We, we all do, I, I suppose. But those little promises are actually about one great, simple, big promise, the gospel of God. So if you really want to understand the Bible, here's what you need to do. You should read the children's Jesus Storybook Bible. That, trust me, my friends, is the place to start and very often to continue. I remember when I first went up to Cambridge to study history, the first book I bought was actually a book called, you wait for it, The Weetabix History of the World. It came in pictures. And it had a great long timeline running along the bottom. You see, the first and most important thing about studying history is actually to understand what happened and beforehand and what happened afterwards and what's going on at the same time. And you can read very long, complicated books that just assume you know that, but I didn't. And so I referred often to my pictorial guide to world history all through my undergraduate days. It was very useful, trust me. So get the Jesus Storybook Bible. Buy it if you, if you don't have it already. See, when Paul says the prophets, then, he is not meaning that there are little bits of special prophecies to which different ideas point or different special hidden meanings that only very talented or very spiritual people can discern. No, he's saying that the whole of Scripture is prophetic. That's what he says. He says so. The prophets wrote in the Holy Scriptures. They're all pointing somewhere. Actually, that uh, last phrase there is the one phrase that Karl Barth, in his sometimes good and sometimes not good commentary, fails to mention at all. He skips right over the Scripture that Paul calls holy. There was for Paul, though, not only the apostolic message, what we call the New Testament, that he discussed in verse 1 as being authoritative, uh, there was also the whole of the Holy Scriptures, which are all prophetically pre-preaching the gospel of God. Now, that's what Paul is saying, and it's probably, it seems to me, the most radical thing that we will ever hear in our whole lives. Now, let me uh, then try and explain how Paul gets to this idea that the whole of the Scriptures are promising the gospel of God, and then explain why this is the most radical thing that we will ever hear in our whole lives. So first, how does he get there? Well, Paul shows us how he gets there in chapter 4. Now, remember with me as you turn up chapter 4, 
Uh, it's page 941 in the Pew Bibles. Remember with me that these first four or so verses of uh, Romans are actually like a table of contents. So they're indicating what Paul's going to develop later on in the book. And this idea of uh, the Holy Scriptures pre-preaching the gospel uh, is uh, developed all the way through Romans. He quotes often from the Scriptures, the Old Testament, but especially Romans chapter 4, page 941. Let me read out at least some of it for you. He, he starts like this, chapter 4, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to our flesh? In other words, what about Abraham? What was the message of Abraham, whose father is Abraham? Well, what could be more important than that question today? Is Abraham the father of Islam, Judaism, or those who follow Jesus? Talk about something relevant. How do you answer that question? Well, look at verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So it is not by works, and therefore not the pillars of Islam not pilgrimage. It is not works that partly save you along with faith. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, but it's not what Paul teaches. Abraham was not justified by works. For, uh, Paul carries on to explain, verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Quoting, of course, from Genesis chapter 15. Now, I once studied uh, that key passage with a rabbi from Yale University. I wanted to study it in Hebrew with a rabbi. And what I discovered was it means the same in Hebrew with a rabbi as it does in Greek as it does in English. God counted Abraham righteous through Abraham's faith. Now, Abraham's faith was not the grounding of his righteousness. It was not the basis of his righteousness. The grounding and the basis was God counting him righteous. It was God who did it, not Abraham, otherwise it is works. And then, in case anyone was confused, Paul uses an example from the very practical world of work. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, you know what it's like when you're working. Perhaps you're on a construction job. You work hard. You expect to be paid. Sometimes I'm afraid you have to send in a lot of little notes and bills in order to finally get paid. <laughs> but being paid is your due. If you're not paid, you will not receive what is your right. That's the way works operate. You work, you get paid. But salvation is not like that. It's not about going out to work to earn a living. Of course, that's important. We need to earn a living. But that's not how salvation operates. And so Paul says, then verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So in salvation, in justification... And we'll develop this chapter more when we get to chapter 4. Uh, we do not work and yet are still counted as righteous by faith. All that, Paul says, is prophetically pre-preached in the, 
in the Holy Scriptures, in the Old Testament Bible, in the Old Testament Scriptures. So you want to know what the Bible is about. It's not about clothes you wear or rules you have to obey. It's about inability to please God, but God counting us righteous anyway if we believe. That's the gospel pre-preached in Abraham. And so the sons of Abraham then are those who believe that gospel. Not ethnicity, not Islam. But then Paul goes further and says you can see the same thing in David actually. Of all people, this too prophetically pre-preaches the gospel of God. He describes this from verse 6. Can you see it? Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So no works at all. David was not righteous because of works. He was righteous apart from works. And do you know the story of David? I mean, have you ever thought, how could someone like David... Be counted righteous. How can a murderer and an adulterer be counted righteous? It's true, isn't it, that the Bible's much more real about our heroes than we often are. I don't know about you, but I get somewhat tired of reading biographies of great Christian leaders that do not tell me their faults. Spurgeon biographies, I think particularly it can be like this. Uh, They all tell me how intelligent he was and how he read 30 books before breakfast and preached sermons in his sleep. Well, I'm not like that. I want to know about his sins. Not so I can tear a good man down. And by the way, Spurgeon was a sinner. Uh, but so I can lift up the same God who used Spurgeon and can use me and you. And not just use me, justify me. If David is righteous, you can be. An adulterer here this morning can be righteous. A murderer can be righteous. David was. Same is true of Abraham. He lied. You know that story? You can read it afterwards, or perhaps you know it. He did many other wrong things, Abraham. But righteousness is apart from works. It is not faith and works. It's apart from works. Now, this is all the Bible in preview Of course, and as the Bible unfolds, the question inevitably arises, well, how? How can God who is holy, who is just, how can God who is just justify the unrighteous? And that, of course, is revealed in Christ who took our condemnation in himself. Well, that's all promised in the Old Testament, the Holy Scriptures. It doesn't happen in the Old Testament. And yet there the gospel was pre-preached. And so the Bible is really a very simple book, literally simple It has a single thread running through it, the gospel of God, righteousness by faith, not by works. Good news for sinners. Now, I said this was the most radical message that uh, we will ever 
be likely to hear, so let me explain why in four practical propositions. Uh, Somonic theory loves propositional statements. Well, I have four this morning, brief practical propositional statements. Go put that in your pipe and smoke it. Just like Spurgeon. Here they are. These are really transformational aspects of understanding how the Bible fits together in this way. One, fear no evil. See, this comes from when we understand how the Bible fits together and how it's really one message about the gospel, fear no evil. See, I find many Christians live in fear of evil. They fear the mosque down the road. They fear the unforgivable sin. They fear they have messed up in some way or other. They fear that because they sinned when they were four, kicked the cat, lied about their homework, sped on the highway, touched a Ouija board, now somehow they're cursed. That life is not going to be good and they're under some sort of cloud of evil. This, This means then they become desperate and they start looking for radical cures in the wrong places outside of Christ. But see, my friend, when you understand the Bible is about the gospel of God, that it is its simple, that is its simple overarching message as a whole book, then you fear no evil. Why? Because the serpent crusher has arrived. Now, there was a curse. We sinned. But God promised that a serpent crusher would come, Genesis 3, verse 15, the Proto-Evangelium, as Luther called it. And now in Christ, we are free from the curse. Sure, we all still have issues, all of us do, and difficulties in this world, but we are now destined for a place where there is no curse. God's righteousness is declared as far as the curse is found, as the hymn puts it. So Christian, fear no evil. That doesn't mean you're passive, it means you're active. But You're not frightened of death, you're not frightened of defeat, you're not frightened of how the bills will be paid. You're in Christ, the serpent has been crushed, you fear no evil. So take risks in relationship with other people in this church. Love those around you. Invest in this community, perhaps join a small group, take that risk. Don't return evil for evil, but overcome evil with love. Why? The serpent has been crushed. Fear no evil. Here's a second transformational aspect. Not just fear no evil, but believe no lie. Believe no lie. See, because the Bible is basically about the gospel of God, we can avoid believing any lie that says different. Who is the prophet who was to come that Moses in Deuteronomy promised would come? The Bible tells us it is Jesus. That's what Peter explains in Acts 3, verses 22 and 23. This Christ who has come is the prophet who was promised. That prophet, like Moses, was a Jew, for he must be from among one of their brothers. So no one who's not a Jew could be that prophet, which rules out Muhammad immediately, who was an Arab. He must be like Moses. And Moses was the great redeemer of Israel, who under God's instructions instituted the Passover, the redemption message of the Lamb, 
who would take away the sins of the world, which is fulfilled in Christ, who took away the sins of the world. Now, we love Muslims. We reach out to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we reject Islam, for we believe no lie. See, in our sort of tolerant age, I fear that many of us are too susceptible to ideas that say that they are evangelical, but are not viewing the Bible in the way that Paul does. Take the issue of open theism, the pernicious idea that God does not control the future. Well, how could such a person understand the pre-preaching of the gospel in the Old Testament? If God is not sovereign, did he just get lucky with Abraham and Moses and David? Take the issue of authority that we looked at last week. If the Bible and church tradition is equally authoritative, then why did Paul claim authority based upon the fact of his apostleship from Christ and the pre-preaching of the gospel and the Holy Scriptures and not on the basis of what the traditional understanding of the rabbis was at the time. Take the issue of the canon of Scripture. If, as some say, there was no real authoritative canon in Paul's time, why does he just refer to holy Scriptures, knowing that everyone knew what he meant? If the Bible's not that important and can be put uh, aside in favor of uh, the changing culture and our personal feelings, why are the Scriptures holy? That's the only time here that Paul describes them that way. Or take the issue of those who have never heard the gospel. All the secret things belong to God, not to us. The God of all the earth will do what is right. The Bible is written For those who will believe it, there is, of course, mystery here. And yet, if the gospel of God being actually verbally proclaimed, spoken, was not a matter of eternal significance, then why would God pre-preach the gospel in the Old Testament Scriptures and not just talk about how to make a really nice meal without using pork? Why would Paul say in Romans 10, verse 14, how are they to hear without someone preaching if it did not matter whether people heard the gospel or not? Now, of course, we must love our neighbors, and yet we are to speak the truth in love and therefore believe no lie. Truth matters. It is not loving to accept or believe lies. That's why the whole idea of tolerance is mistaken. It's not loving to accept or believe a lie. It will not help anyone. It was not loving to anyone. If evangelicalism defines the Bible as not about the gospel of God, uh, evangelical equals evangel equals gospel, then in what sense is it evangelical? It's like calling someone a Christian, I sometimes think, who is not interested in Christ. Calling someone an evangelical who isn't interested in the evangel, a gospeler without a gospel. See how our relativistic idea of tolerance has led us down the wrong wrong track rather than the Christian idea of loving those around us and having the freedom to speak the truth in love. Well, here's uh, the third transformational aspect 
Bow the knee. Bow the knee. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, the obedience of faith is a key sub-theme in Romans. Uh, We saw faith is not just a personal decision like buying soap, but it is submitting in its essence to Jesus. That is, to believe in him is an act of obeying what he wants. What are the works that God requires? That is, to believe in the one he has sent, namely to believe in him. Now, Psalm 2 makes this very clear as a prophetic pre-preaching of the gospel. My friends, if we knew our Old Testament, we would be much less likely to misunderstand the New Testament, for the, the New Testament is, in many ways, an exegesis of the Old Testament. You need to understand what it's trying to interpret. Psalm 2 tells us to kiss the Son, that is, as we might say, there's the King and we are to believe in Him, that is, as we would put it, to bow the knee. Some time ago, there was a British politician called Neil Kinnock. One time, uh, some tourists were visiting the Houses of Parliament, and an official came out from a corridor clothed in all the regalia that you would expect of a high-up authority figure in such a sort of traditional institution, you know, long cloaks, special clothes of various kinds, looking impressive, you know. And across the gaggle of tourists... This official spotted Neil Kinnock walking in the opposite direction. He wanted a quick word with him. So to attract his attention, he raised his hand and shouted across the room and across the group of tourists, Neil! Whereupon all the tourists immediately fell to their knees in obeisance. (laughs) Jesus is king. Neil, I grew up in a church where there were kneelers. I'm not suggesting we put them in right away. I don't think there'd be any room in our pews, but sometimes I miss it. Neil, he is the king. Listen to Psalm 2. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Listen to this, captains of industry, CEOs, dictators of the bedroom, the boardroom, the nursery, and the schoolyard, as well as dictators of your own soul. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's the kind of joy we need as Christians, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, bow the knee. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. That's a serious business. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That is true happiness now and forever. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So perhaps next time you hear someone say, just believe in Jesus, would you remember what it means? Kneel. Or the fourth and final transformational aspect of understanding how the Bible fits together that Paul indicates in this verse is this, live guilt-free. I find so many of us Christians live unnecessarily under a sense of condemnation. I want that to stop right here and now for you, dear brother, dear sister. seems to me that's one of the other great purposes and goals of Romans. Romans chapter 8, that uh, pinnacle chapter of the book begins with a clarion call to assurance. 
Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Romans 8, as we will see, is telling us not how to live a victorious life, but how with all our sins and failures so extensively listed in Romans 7, we can still be those who are not under condemnation. How? We are in Christ Jesus. I suspect this too we would have a much better view of if we beheld the preview of the Bible, the prophetic writings of the Holy Scriptures that pre-preach Jesus. Perhaps you know that famous chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 53 verse 6. Maybe you know it uh, by heart. You learnt it. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's the human condition. That's your condition. That's my condition. But that was the condition of Israel, God's people. It's a good outreach verse, certainly that one. I've preached it evangelistically many a time. Perhaps you have. It's a good outreach verse, yes. But it was written first to people who were in the covenant and had sinned against God. They had all gone astray. Yes, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, who is the him in the verse? Who does the prophets, of whom does the prophet speak? Of course, Jesus. So you, Christian, can therefore have no condemnation because all that was taken by Jesus and you are now guilt-free. I remember once sharing some problem I was facing with a good friend who was also a gifted psychiatrist. He looked at me and said, "Uh, you can feel quite a burden there, can't you? And as he said it, he did something quite remarkable. He looked at me and he turned his palms face up and he lifted up his arms. It was a gifted psychological move and I felt almost immediately better. I was grateful for that conversation and friendship and for many others when people share burdens or assure me of their love as I'm sure you are of your friendships or for when people tell you, it's all right, don't worry, everyone makes mistakes. But this is not that. This is an objective release of guilt. Perhaps you remember that famous book by Aldous Huxley, A Brave New World. In it, every time anyone experiences pain of any kind, they're just given a drug, a pill that Huxley called Soma. And there's always Soma, it's explained to one character in the story to calm your anger, to reconcile you to your enemies, to make you patient and long-suffering. In the past, you could only accomplish these things by making a great effort, and after years of hard moral training, now you swallow two or three half-gram tablets, and there you are. Anybody can be virtuous now. You can carry at least half your morality about in a bottle. Christianity without tears. That's what Soma is. seems to me that today, very often, because we underpreach the cross, we have Christ without tears. And that's why so many Christians live under condemnation. They go to this or that drug, friend, media, outlet, TV, web surfing, one soma or another. Why? Because they're trying to escape their sense of guilt or ignore it. Or be numbed so they don't feel it. 
But my dear brother, my dear sister, have you looked at the cross recently? Have you seen him who hung dead for you? Have you noticed that the iniquity of us all was laid on him? Now, I didn't agree with all the theology of the Passion movie and the parts they added in from tradition rather from, than from the Bible, and it had far more blood and guts in it than the Bible does in its description, which is a lot more restrained. But I do remember watching it in a movie theater, and after the show, there was absolute silence. Now, do you remember that? Did you see it? The cross, all the iniquity laid on him. Actually, the amazing fact about that is that the real suffering of the cross was not the physical. Uh, That's why the Bible is more restrained about such things than the movie was. It wants us to understand the real suffering of the cross was the spiritual. The cry of desperation was not, wow, that hurts very, very badly. It was... You remember, don't you, the cry of desperation of our Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken that we might be forgiven. Carrying the sin of all of us. Now, My dear friend, my Christian brother or sister, how can you think that God still holds you under condemnation? It's all gone, all of it. Every single little bit, all on Him laid. How could you possibly think that God will keep a little list of things to black mark you on for all eternity? It's all gone, every bit. Paul doesn't say some condemnation. All condemnation is gone for those in Christ Jesus. Every last part is laid on Him. To live guilt-free. Bow the knee. Kneel. Believe no lie. Yes, we need to love those around us, but to love them means to tell the truth and to believe the truth. Believe no lie, fear no evil. The serpent has been crushed. It's the most radical message that we will ever hear in our lives. The prophets in the Holy Scriptures pre-preach the gospel. Let's pray together. Let's just have a, a moment of uh, quiet, a pause. Uh, perhaps there's something on your conscience that you need to confess before God. No one else can hear apart from you and God, so would you be free to, to tell him and to name the sin There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Father God, would you help us to understand the Bible as a book about uh, the gospel of God? 
and therefore to live differently as a result. We pray that uh, every day, all through the day, by the power of your Spirit, from morning to evening, we would therefore stand secure and confident on every promise of your word. We pray this for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen.